as we go into the book of Judges here, I think that, uh, one, the tendency that I find more and more is for people to uh, ignore or disregard most of the Old Testament uh, outside of like Proverbs, people like Psalms. But uh, when you get into this historical narrative stuff, like the book of Judges, uh, we start reading things that we really don't like. Um, it bothers us. And, um, and, and I think when it comes to like the book of Judges, a lot of us, what we know about the book of Judges is from like, um, like Bible story books that highlight, that highlight Samson or Gideon uh, and that. And so we're a little familiar with it, but we have no idea all that's actually in there. And so I think that for a lot of us, as, as you heard, we're going to like go into this book. Uh, there's like hesitancy. There's like, what is it going to address? What is it going to look like? And how is this really going to play out? And one of the things that uh, I think is so important that I found is, although, you know, uh, as we look into this setting over 3,000 years ago, I, I see things happening and a way of thinking that is exactly what's happening in our culture today. Because we live in a, uh, a culture today, uh, in a society that, that really highlights that you uh, should be able to do and say and worship whatever and however you want, okay? And, and if your heart's leading you into it, go for it. You should do it. And that can mean anything anymore, right? And, and, and so uh, that, that's kind of the culture we're in. And um, not only is it this like thing that's disconnected from like Christianity, but we see that in Christianity. In fact, we just did this series on the rhythms that define us as Jesus followers, which are commands that he's, he's commanded us to do. Uh, and, and one of the reasons we did that is because like we've created this Christian experience that caters to what we want, right? And, and so we highlight and bring in the things we want and we disregard the things we don't. And I think that the book of Judges sums up this mindset really, really well as it characterizes the people around 3,000 years ago. In Judges 21, 25, this is what it says. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I go, oh my goodness. Well, that's us. That's today. And so despite this incredible gap in time, there are these parallels between our situations, uh, our time, and then also the book of Judges. Uh, and, and this is a book that's going to uh, recount about uh, 350 years of history of God's people, the people of Israel. Um, and it's essentially going to take place uh, as, as we look at uh, the Israelites being rescued out of slavery in Egypt and Moses leading them. We see that Moses ultimately, because of some sin issues, isn't able to take them into the promised land, which the people of Israel were promised, the land of Canaan, this promised land. And so uh, he's not able to do it. So God calls him to hand off the leadership baton to, oh, there's like five people. All right. Um, to hand it off to uh, an individual that you're familiar with, probably Joshua. And so uh, what we see is from the end of Joshua um, to right before we are introduced to the kings um, and we go into that phase of the nation of Israel, we have this book of Judges that sits right in between. 
And what this was was a time of, of just spiritual pluralism. Uh, as the uh, people of Israel, they, they had gained access. They're now in the land, um, and they're there. But now they need uh, to take over this land. So they've, they, they, they've gone into the land. They, they've experienced victories. But now it's time for them to settle into the land. And currently what's happening that we're going to walk through is we see that they're there, but they're intermingled with all of these other people groups uh, who have yet to be driven out, who uh, practice idolatry in ways that are beyond sick and twisted. I mean, evil. And so the nation of Israel is surrounded by that, these different people groups, and, and we see that uh, essentially in the book of Judges, uh, the main theme is, is how God's people failed. Yay. It's literally how they continually turn from knowing, loving, and obeying God to doing what was right in their own eyes, which usually looked like what everyone else was doing, which we can really connect with today. And so as history unfolds, what makes Judges uh, even more difficult is these heroes in this book that, that we put up on this pedestal, uh, that the, the actual Judges themselves, what we see is they become increasingly flawed, and we see just dramatic moments of failure on their uh, uh, part, and, and we see them do some things that, honestly, they're just appalling. Like, we're going to read it, and you're just going to go, oh my goodness, and, and, and the efforts that they go into to do what they do, we go, man, this just looks less and less uh, redemptive. And so, honestly, we go, well, God, why is this in here? And I think what's so powerful, you guys, about Scripture that you need to know and understand, especially if you're new to Scripture, is what separates the Bible uh, from so many other books uh, for other religions is the Bible is not about following moral examples. It's about a God of mercy who's long-suffering and continually works in us and through us despite our constant resistance to his purposes. You guys, there is ultimately one hero in the book of the Bible, Jesus. Okay, and, and so I think one of the challenges uh, that happens in our lives is we actually read these stories and we make these people out to be these heroes and pedestals, but ultimately they are distraction if they distract us from Jesus. And you're going to see why Jesus is so necessary because they fail. Just as in our lives, all of us fail, right? And so every time we fail, hopefully you're reminded, oh, that's why I need Jesus. And, and so we're going to see that all throughout the book of Judges. It's not an easy read, and yet it is an essential one for us. And so uh, as, as we look at uh, just the, the historical setting here uh, that we go into, uh, we have to address Joshua because Joshua was that, that chosen uh, leader. He and one other guy, Caleb, were the ones that had gone through the exodus out of Egypt and yet remained faithful to the Lord all throughout that time. And so God promised them that they would be able to go into uh, the promised land. And, and so we see the book of Joshua is right before Judges. And it's an essential book for us to understand Judges because uh, what happens in the book of Joshua is God charts out 
um, the work that he wants to do through his people in order to keep the promise that he has for them, which is what? To bring them into the promised land and to defeat their enemies so that he can give them blessing and rest. And so Joshua helps us understand the scene that we're entering into for Judges um, because for, for one thing, at the beginning of Joshua, God gives these specific directions for Joshua and the people which help us measure out through the book of Judges how successful the people are at, at doing what God has already promised and called them to do. And, and, and so first we see God tells in Joshua, he tells the people in Joshua what the dimensions are of the promised land that he's going to give them. So in Joshua chapter 1, 3 and 4, uh, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the, re the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. See, so he literally outlines, this is all the land that, that, I, that I want you, my chosen people, to uh, occupy. Second, he reminds them that, they're, that whatever uh, victories they may have, and, 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 and essentially, he's promised to give them victory as they drive these pagan people out of the land. It must be accompanied by a close and humble spiritual walk with God. In fact, in verses 7 and 8 there of Joshua 1, this is what he says. He says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand nor to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Guys, what kind of a promise is that to claim? Is that not amazing? I mean, he's literally outlined, like, like if, if you will just do what I've said, if you will hold on to my word and, and, and place my words above any other word and, and hold fast to the covenant that I've called you to make with me, not anybody else, um, and, and, and if you will allow that to permeate your heart, your soul, and mind and meditate on those things, you will have victory. It's not if, it's not maybe, it's you will you will take hold of this land and have rest. And, and so the book of Joshua records the beginning of this process of entering in and taking the land. And for the most part, the people are very obedient. They trust God and God gives them victory. But at the end of Joshua's life, there's still much more to be done. The land, it lies open to Israel, but they still need to settle in it and they need to trust in God in order to push out these current inhabitants uh, that are there. Now, the purpose for driving out the current inhabitants, uh, these Canaanites, it, it wasn't vengeful uh, or, or this economic thing. It wasn't motivated by those things, which I'm going to unpack a little later, but it was spiritual. It was a spiritual thing. They were to be removed so that Israel would not fall under their pagan religious influence. 
Um, and so Israel was to build this home country to serve God in a land where surrounding nations would be able to see the true God through the lives of his people, right? So, so this is designed to be a country where, where people that are surrounding them can look to them, can, can point them out, and, and keep in mind up until this point, already all the different people groups that are in this area, they're already talking about them. There's something different about them. There's something different about their God, right? And so God is like, I want you to claim this promised land. And so the other pagan nations, they're going to be able to see me, experience me and who I am and the power that I have through you. If you'll just do this my way. And so that was the design here. That was the uh, intent. Uh, just like, honestly, if you're married, that's what your marriage is designed to do. People should be able to look at your marriage and it should be able to point them to God and to who God is. They should be able to see God. They should see the gospel in your marriage. And so uh, let's start here. In Judges chapter one, verse one, it says this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Okay, now, the writer, we don't know for sure who wrote this, although many historians point to a prophet named Samuel. But what we see here is, Israel has just experienced a ton of victories through the leadership of Joshua. Joshua has not passed on this leadership baton to anybody. And so the people rightly seek the Lord after Joshua dies. And they go, God, who's to lead as we go in to fulfill what you've called us to do to push these people uh, out of this area? And so they're seeking the Lord's will, and, and the Lord decrees two things. First, Judah alone is the tribe he appoints to go up first to fight the Canaanites on behalf of Israel. Okay, so that's the first thing he says. Second, the Lord decrees victory with certainty for Judah. So he's already determined that the Canaanites will experience defeat at the hands of Judah. So all Judah and, and, and really the rest of Israel, all they have to do is trust in the voice of God. Just, just trust that what he's saying, he's going to do. And what happens? Almost immediately, Judah fails. Now you're like, wait, what? They were successful. What are you talking about? Well, so Judah does what right after they're told to do this? Judah approaches Simeon. And, and, and guys, this is a strategic move, right? We would say, good job. Like, way to go. Way to collaborate. Way to have each other's back. But he goes to Simeon and says, hey, if you go with me and help me defeat them, I'm going to go with you and help you, right? Seemingly just harmless. Makes sense from a military standpoint. But it's faithlessness spiritually, isn't it? See, God's word was 
for Judah and Judah only to go. But, and, and, and they're like, well, we do. They go, but they go what? They go alone. And what seems like just this innocent strategic thing is actually, when we unpack it, it's actually a, a, a rebellion against what God has asked them to do. It's actually demonstrating a lack of faith and trust that when God said, you alone, I've got you, you do it, victory is there, they don't essentially fully trust or fully uh, believe. And, and, and so it's revealing this lack of faith in them. And you guys, that are, that's the cracks in the foundation when it comes to compromise. See, whenever we go outside of the word of God to achieve what we aspire to accomplish, we're compromising the voice of God and we're compromising our faith. Anytime we add to the words of God in order to accomplish our desires, it's compromise. And you guys, compromise in your faith will bring destruction in your faith. And, and that's even if it's this like seemingly just innocent asking for help to accomplish. Well, no, God says, I've asked you to do that. I've gifted you. I've called you. I've placed you to be that. And then we keep going. In verse four, it says, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Just hang with me, okay? You're like, what happened? And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done. So God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So what, what we see, first of all, you guys, is, is the Lord still gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. In fact, uh, Judah, they, they rout the inhabitants and, and capture and kill Adonai Bezek, which is essentially the Lord of Bezek was his name. And what's interesting here, now when they cut off their thumbs and their toes, um, what they were doing in those days, which is, is physically, they were declaring that you are not going to be able to attack us anymore. Like physically, you cannot fight anymore. And, and so they would do that with, with the leaders. And, and, and in fact, it's interesting how he responds, right? He says, he says, yep, this was coming. This is judgment from God. I've done this to over 70 kings. And, and, and so we see um, him acknowledging God is repaying me. And, and so having won this victory, Judah then continues, as we're going to read here, continues to take hold of its inheritance. Uh, we pick up in verse 8. And like I said, hang with me. There's a lot of names and words, but just hang with me. My middle child, as I was reading these out loud last night, thought I was reading about Star Wars. And, but in, <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> in verse 8, it says... And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negeb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kariath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was Formerly, Kariah Sefer, and Caleb said, he who attacks Kariah Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. 
If you're big on naming your kids biblical names, there you go if you have a daughter, Axa, okay? Um, and then in verse 30, it says, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Axa, his wife, uh, his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of Negeb, Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Canaanite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, which is the area of Jericho, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Gib near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephtha and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashtalon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Okay, so Judah, we see here, is capturing, they capture Jerusalem. They defeat the, the Canaanites in the hill country and the lowlands of the Negev. And they defeat uh, the Canaanites living in Hebron, uh, including the sons of Anak, which I'll highlight in a minute. But between the record of these victories, uh, we see the, the narrator here, the writer, actually goes back to this uh, story, this, this battle from Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 through 19, uh, where we see Caleb uh, offering up his daughter for those who will um, attack and uh, drive out this specific people group. And it's interesting how the narrator just stops and places that in there uh, for us to just see this. And what, is, what he's highlighting is this faithful family, the family of Caleb. And, 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 he's, and he's reminding us of the success that was had because of their wholehearted obedience. And, and, and then we, we, we get to the, the, uh, the Kenites, who are descendants of Moses' father-in-law, and they join and live among them, it says. And then Judah defeats Zephthah with Simeon's help. And then they capture Gaza, Exelon, and Ekron. And, and so we read all of this and we go, man, this is, they're, they're, they're doing what they've been asked to do. In, fa in fact, we go, wow, they're, they're accomplishing this. This is positive. And, and all of these things are happening. That whole thing where they asked Simeon to help, that's, 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 that's history at this point. But then we get to verse 19. It says this, and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph scouted out Bethel now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. And then, and then, guys, here we see this domino effect, all right? Now, we're going to read some names here, and then I'm going to jump to the end. But it says in 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshian, 
and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehelo. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. And then we go down to verse 34, as, as this just literally continues and continues of, of them not driving them out, of them, of them living with them, of them putting the people that they're conquering into slavery. And then 34, it says, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Erez and in Aijalon and in Shalabim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. That's a lot of crazy names. Okay? But here's what we see, you guys. This is what happens. This is the main takeaway. I hope you're still hanging with me and not still caught up in how do you pronounce those. But here's the takeaway. You guys, Judah, what we see, that, that tiny little compromise, which is the cracks in the foundation there in fully following the Lord, we see that Judah doesn't fully trust in God's strength. And so what Judah starts to do is they start to measure their own strength against their enemies. That's the very first thing that happens is, is they start to evaluate, right, how strong they are and how weak they are. They go through the self-evaluation uh, you know, you know, phase in their life. Guys, everybody, every influencer, they're telling you to what? Evaluate yourself, look at yourself, look inward, right? And so what happens though is we start to um, rank ourselves, right? By what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, there's even labels for this, right? That we embrace, that we take on, Okay. Um, and, 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 and yet what we see is as they're measuring their own perceived strength against their enemies, they realize that the specific, uh, enemy, these, these plain dwellers that lived in the plains, their chariots were made of iron. Ooh. Now for them, they go, that technology is way too advanced for us where we're at. We cannot drive them out. Now, when we think about God, clearly, iron chariots are not a problem. Right? But you guys, and here's the thing that we need to consider this morning. When we rely on ourselves and base our walk with God on our own calculations, uh, or even, let's just call it this, common sense, instead of simply obeying what God's called us to do, what he's called us to say, the calling on our life, when, when, when we rely only on ourselves and only on the things that make sense to us outside of simply obeying we find ourselves making the exact same decisions daily that they were making. 
And guys, uh, once again, it's like the, the, the writer just goes, look what's happening. Then he pauses in 2021, and he says, let me talk about Caleb again. Because remember, it was just Joshua and Caleb who were the ones that were able to enter into the promised land, who had been a part of that previous generation. And, 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 and he says, yeah, uh, they couldn't drive out these with the iron chariots, but, but Caleb goes up during this time and, and defeats and drives out the sons of Anak. Now, who are the sons of Anak? Well, the sons of Anak, if you probably don't remember, you're like, oh, it's just... But when they spied out the land, when the Israelites spied out the land to see if they could enter in and take it, the, the spies reported what? There's giants in the land. Those were the sons of Anak. So what we see is, is the, the author kind of pauses and goes, hey, so the chariots thing, just to, just to prove God does not have a problem when there is a superior uh, force that you are against in your life or opposition that you would deem, oh, they're too big, it's too great, it's beyond me, he says, look at what Caleb did. And Caleb was an old man. Look what he did. Drove out all of those in the territory that belonged to him, and he succeeded where Judah did not. Why? Scripture tells us there was something different about Caleb, doesn't it? And in Numbers 14, 24, this is what we read about Caleb. It says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Guys, isn't that incredible? Now, here's what's sad about it. Caleb was around the people of God, and yet God says he has a different spirit. That's troubling, isn't it? But what was different about him? You guys, Caleb fully followed the Lord. If God said do it, he fully believed in it. He fully trusted in it. He fully knew that, that God, if God declares victory, it's victory, it's done. And so I don't have to get caught up in how I'm wired, how smart I am, physically my stature and my personal limitations, right? My giftings and all that. I don't, have to, I don't even have to, I don't have to consider it. All I have to do is cling to the promises of God. And if he's called me to do it, if he's leading me into it, I uncompromisingly move forward by faith. And, and, and guys, here's what's so dangerous about what's happening here. Judah doesn't even notice what's unraveling. Are, are you catching that? They're not, there's no pause here. There's nothing. And, and so why, why is that happening, you guys? What we, what we see here is Judah's success, because they're having success, right? You didn't read about any losses there from Judah. Judah's successes seem to keep them from recognizing the little compromises they start to make. Guys, um, and I even, I even look at many spiritual leaders who uh, have huge ministries, huge influence, and yet glaring weaknesses, failures in their life, and yet it's like, man, that's, but they're so successful. There's so many people in our lives that are successful. And I think that there's a really important truth here that, man, I just pray that you hear this morning. Because I think one of the things, one of the traps that, that I find within Christianity is this mindset that if I experience success, 
if I'm given a promotion, if I'm given a raise, if I make the team, if I get this opportunity, if that person chooses to marry me or date me, if this goal looks like it's going to happen, we immediately say, God, you are blessing me. We immediately tell people, like, I pray for it, and, and God brought it to me. God delivered on it. Like, like God is blessing my life right now. Uh, like, God has given me this opportunity. God has given me this purpose. Uh, person. God has given me this purpose. He's opened this door. And so what we're very quick to do is give the title of whatever success or achievement we may have and immediately say, that's God. And yet what is so scary about this is the very successes that you may have or maybe even be praying for or maybe attributing to God, the enemy who can describe himself as an angel of light, may actually be using to get you to be so distracted by your success, by your advancement, by all of the praises going on in your life that you don't even recognize the compromises that are happening in your life, and there are serious cracks to the foundation. Guys, this is something that, man, I was reading this, and I was just, God, what? Where am I compromising? Where am I compromising? Because one of the things that is scary is how success can distort my ability to recognize compromise in my life. Because typically, you guys, we don't even look at the areas that we're compromising in if things in our life are going well. If things are going well, it's, it's weird. We actually just go into this posture of just, and we, we call it just praise, right? It's just, man, God is good. Everything's good. Oh, it's so good. And my kids are great. My relationship with my kids, my spouse and, and work's going well and all this. And we just jump on that wave and we're just riding it for all it's worth and we're enjoying it. And all the while, as we do that, we, we stop allowing the word of God to reveal and expose and convict. And we also start to negate words, um, verses, calling on our lives that God was clear with, and we start to actually compromise on some of those uh, very things. And, and, what, and what we also start to do is because we're, um, we're so uh, caught up, I say blinded by the good things in our life, we don't even notice these compromises that ultimately for some can lead to an addiction. I have connected with a lot of people in addiction. Some of, some of my closest friends caught in addictions. Guys, 100%, none of them said, I want to be an addict. None of them. How did that happen? To good people, to successful people. How in the world do we wake up and, and, and our lives are completely different at some point, and yet there was so much good, so much success, and all of these things, right? I mean, how does it happen, you guys? Like, like you think of a husband and wife and, and standing before each other and making these incredible vows to each other, right? They're amazing. We're just, oh. 
And then all of a sudden it's like, done, over. I hate you. I want nothing to do. How in the world does that happen, you guys? It happens through these compromises in our lives. How in the world could someone walk away from their faith in Jesus when they understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them? How in the world does that happen? How? Little by little compromises. And so what we see, you guys, is, and this is the warning for you parents in the room, this compromise, it doesn't stay with Judah, does it? It spreads. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a parent, your compromise is not just your problem anymore. Okay? And I embrace that as a parent. Uh, my kids are picking up on my compromises. Okay? And they're probably going to outdo me in how they compromise. And so that's something I have to live with as an awareness, right? And we see, uh, once again, this is, this is happening here in chapter one. God's like, hey, let me just peel the blinders off. This is a mess. Okay? And, and, and so we see uh, all these tribes, they start following in the footsteps. Benjamin follows in the footsteps of Judah. They fail to dislodge the Jebusites, the house of Joseph. They make covenants with a Canaanite. Uh, they're literally there to defeat them. Their spies say, see somebody coming in and out, and they're like, hey, we'll save you and your family if you just allow us in, we won't kill you. Great, I'll do that deal. And so does that deal. They were never called. In fact, they were commanded to not make a covenant with the people of the land. And so they make a covenant with this guy, and you guys, this guy does the ultimate like thumb up back at them, right? Like, like he, he makes this, like they, they agree and all that. So what does the guy do? He literally goes to a different region and starts a city and names it the name of the city they just took over. Right? Like, <laughs> you know? And, and, and they were told, like, no, uh, only those are you to spare that, that, that agree to the terms of peace, where God is the God alone. And so we, we see that Manasseh fails to drive out various inhabitants. Uh, and then we see not only them fail to drive them out, but they exploit these people. They bring them into slavery. God never called them to do that. So now they're exploiting the very people there to, they're to push out, and, and, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then in verse 36, it describes to us the borders of the Amorites. So no longer are we caught up with the borders of the promised land. We're being told about the borders of the Amorites. Why is that so sad? They refuse to leave, and their faith, their um, bold courage to not leave was greater than the Israelites who had God. Man, that's sad. So therefore, they're now living alongside people who are in idolatry. And those are the people they're intermingling with every day. The very people of God told to distinguish themselves. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. 
As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Okay, so what is this? What is God's response to what has just transpired? Transpired. The angel of the Lord comes and the angel, or, angel of the Lord moves from Gilgal to Bochum. We read, now, why does the angel of the Lord go to Gilgal? And when you see the angel of the Lord, uh, typically in the Old Testament, that's God himself showing up and he goes from Gilgal. You guys, Gilgal was the place, that place where after they crossed the Jordan River and it dried up, it's that place where they carried the 12 stones in remembrance. It's where Joshua 5 tells us they made a covenant with God. And, 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 and they said, we're never gonna forget. We're gonna memorialize this, how God has been faithful, how he dried up the Red Sea for us to walk across, how he dried up the Jordan River, the victory that we have. And so God, we enter into this covenant agreement with you. We are gonna love you. We're gonna serve you only. We're gonna tear down the altars uh, of those in the promised land that defy you, that want nothing to do with you. And so Gilgal was the place where they could and should remember what God has historically done on their behalf. And so the, so the symbolism here is so powerful. The angel of the Lord comes and is reminding them immediately just by where he comes from, he's reminding them of the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. And, and, and he says, this is the covenant. I've kept my portion. And yet he says, what? You have disobeyed my voice. How? They made a covenant with the people of the land, and they failed to break down their altars. See, guys, when you look at this campaign, and, and, and you know, uh, we read it from our context, we go, man, I don't agree with this campaign, and all this pushing people out, and you guys, the purpose of this campaign isn't this ethnic cleansing. I want to first be really clear. This isn't like racism going on here. We read it, and we go, what are they doing? Like, if that was the case, Rahab, who was a Canaanite and a prostitute, they would have said, you can't be a part of this. And she was brought in, right? We see the, the, uh, the Kenites who settled with Judah. That was Moses' father-in-law people, right? So, so, so that's not the case. That's not the motivation. This isn't about imperialistic conquest, right? Because they were not allowed ever to plunder and steal from people. And second, they were not allowed to put people into slavery. The, 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 the purpose is to, is to cleanse the land of Canaan from its idols so that Israel's able to live in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. That's it. And Israel failed to keep their covenant responsibilities. And as a result, the Lord keeps his words of his covenant to them and says, I am refusing to drive out the people. And he tells them of, that these people are going to now be thorns in your sides and their gods will become snares to you. You guys, it's so clear all throughout scripture. God wants lordship over every area of your life. He wants lordship. And, 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 and what's the, what, what, what is the motivation behind what God is saying? God is literally wanting to protect them and God is wanting to bless them. Are you, are you seeing that? Like, like, like God is like, <laughs> look, at, look at what I've done with you, all that I've done in your life. And for some of you this morning, you need to consider that. 
Remember what God has done in your life because you've forgotten. Remember the faithfulness when you were faithless. Remember all the time you've turned away and yet he still remained faithful. And, and his promises are so true. He wants to bless your life. He promises his hand of protection on your life. He promises to do incredible things in and through your uh, life just as he promised the nation of Israel. And, and we look at this and we go, but wait, they didn't fully reject God. Yeah, but they didn't fully embrace him either. That is, that is partial obedience. It's partial or incomplete. Um, it's a partial or incomplete commitment, and it is ultimately, once again, what? It's compromise. It's compromise. You guys, compromise is a destroyer of what God wants to do in your life. And what it leads to when, when we get on this compromise train is, uh, once again, you start to measure uh, things based upon your abilities and what you think you can and can't do. And what did the Israelites say? Uh, over and over again, as they're failing to do what they're fully called to do. We can't do this. But here in chapter two, God calls them out and says, no, it's not that you can't do it. You won't do it. See, you guys, one thing, eh, God is absolutely faithful. First Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Is that not incredible? Isn't that amazing? Like, like what kind of a confidence should that give you that he's never gonna put me in a position where I cannot obey him? He promises that, right? And so there is the, never really this this area of my life or, or, or situation where I can say, oh, I can't do that. There are no moments like that. In fact, Scripture uh, reminds us over and over, and I'll just read some of them. Joshua 10.8 says that the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Philippians 4.13, right? As Paul is in this prison cell, I can do what? All things through him who strengthens me. First John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John 16, 33, Jesus talking, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. How many more times do I need to hear that before I receive it? How many more times do I need to hear that before I stop saying I can't? And I actually admit, no, no, God, I'm refusing to do it. I'm saying I won't. You guys, God is the God who rescues. He's faithful. He will never break his covenant. And the root of our disobedience, just as the root of theirs was, is a failure to remember who he is. So they memorialize that place, literally the name meaning weepers, and they make sacrifices to the Lord. And guys, I... Uh, I want to I kind of close with these questions for us to just wrestle with and these thoughts. Just because advancement, success, or achievement is happening in your life, 
it does not mean that that's of God. God wants lordship over every area of your life without compromise. The question is, are there subtle compromises happening in your life right now? Are there times you're saying no to him? Are there times you're just ignoring because things are going well, income's great, family seems to be good, or it's fixed, um, this situation is solved and all that. I went to him with it, but now it's okay, and so, so we're good, but there's little bits of compromise happening. Uh, there's, there's some lies. There's things that you're starting to do, maybe in secret, maybe no one knows but you know that you're starting to compromise and God is even shooting off these warning flares and he's crying out to you and yet you continue to ignore and make these compromises or just partially obey or obey him in an incomplete way. Are, are we making other covenants with other people. And I think the last question we have to ask is, is there, and I can't in my life, that's actually an I won't. Is there something specific that he's been saying or warning that he's been leading you in God, I cannot tell them the truth. I can't. God, I can't. I can't do it. I can't tell that person the truth. God, I cannot forgive them. No. God, you don't know. No, you don't know, God. They did it again. God, you don't know how bad that hurt. God, I cannot forgive them. God, that is too big for me. God, there's no way I can enter into that. God, situation is beyond me. This, I, I don't know what to do. I'm just glad I showed up to church. I made it. God, it's just too much. Guys, you need to know and you need to look back and you need to remember at the faithfulness of God on your life and how much he loves you. Loves you so much that he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to go to the cross for you, to redeem you, to, to, to give you eternal life so that you could enter into a new relationship so he could not only transform your life, but, but that he could use you to transform other lives all around you, that you have a specific and special purpose and mission that he has for your life that's unique to you, so much so that he's gifted you for it. And it's incredible, and it's, it's an amazing thing, but you guys, these things that we hold on to, that we compartmentalize, that, that, that we compromise on, that we say, I won't or I can't, you guys, they hold us back just as they held back the people of Israel. Are we done with that yet? I pray that we are. Let's go to the Lord right now. Let's just, let's get things right. Let's wrestle with this and worship him.